welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Let's begin in Jeremiah chapter 9, but we are going to begin this evening at the end of the chapter rather than the beginning, simply because the end of the chapter introduces a theological reality that corresponds very well with what we've been learning on Sundays out of the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians, as you know, is all about the controversy that happened among the Gentiles at Galatia when the Judaizers came and told them that they needed to be circumcised and to keep parts of the law. Now, very, very briefly, the history of circumcision is that Abraham was told by God that he had to circumcise his children, his heirs. And so circumcision became a physical mark that identified the particular descendants of Abraham, those people who became known as the Israelites, as the Hebrews. And so it was the mark, the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And then the law was given to those particular circumcised people, those people identified as Israel, received the law from the God of Israel. And the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant that was imposed on them there at Mount Sinai. So circumcision and the law are intimately combined in the mind of any Hebrew, any Jew, any Israelite, they know that circumcision and the law is what identifies them as being descendants of Abraham and those people who, through Moses, have the law. Unfortunately, among the Israelites, they started believing the same way that they believed that the temple was sort of a talisman, sort of an identification, or last week we saw that the fact that they had the law was an identification for them where they figured we'll be safe, we'll be okay, because we are God's people. We have been given these advantages that no other people group have been given. We've got the law and the prophets, the ordinances of God, the worship of God, Jerusalem, the temple. We have all of that, therefore we are the particular people of God, so then we don't expect God to drive us out of this land that he has given us. We don't expect him to take us back into slavery. After all, he delivered us from Egypt. He delivered us from bondage. So we don't expect him to take us back into bondage. And during Jeremiah's time, the prophets there in Israel were all saying the same thing, that it was all going to be peace, peace, peace. But there wasn't going to be any peace. Jeremiah was the prophet, the true prophet, the genuine one who heard from God, who knew that, in fact, God was about to punish them by driving them into the Babylonian captivity. Okay, so 
they're still thinking they're going to be okay because they identify with Abraham and they have the physical circumcision, therefore they're going to be okay. You get that thinking? Well, so at the end of Jeremiah 9, God introduces a concept that is carried over into the New Testament. I usually hand out verses for people to read, and I, and I usually just call on the men because they're right up here by my microphone where they can be picked up okay on the microphone I'm wearing. And uh, so I expect them to read and to read loud. And so I don't want to be accused of being a male chauvinist swine. And so I, I, tonight we're going to have some women read, if that's okay with you. We're gonna, really? Jeff's? No. Okay. I think Jeff is going to leave us now. And it's going to be a schism in the church. The only challenge is going to be that if we call on April to read, April, you're going to have to read nice and loud, okay? Okay. She agrees. Galatians 6.13, April, look that up. And if you would, Luann, look up Romans 2. You're going to read verses 25 to 29, four verses there. And if you would... 1 Corinthians 7, and you're going to read 18, 19, and 20. Now, in each of those passages that I have handed out, which are all going to be read nice and loudly in a moment, yeah, in each of those verses, what you will see is Paul in the New Testament arguing that physical circumcision is not the real circumcision that God is looking for. That genuine circumcision is the circumcision of the heart. It is a spiritual circumcision, a putting off of the flesh, a putting off of your confidence in your own works, your own ability to justify yourself, and then resting in God who has cut away at you, who is cutting away at your flesh and cutting away so that you trust in him. That is the spiritual circumcision. Now, where did Paul get that? How did Paul get away with saying, okay, that thing that Abraham was told to do in a very physical, very literal, very genuine fashion, actually circumcise your children, and then that the Jews had been doing for 1,400 years in accordance with both Abraham and the law, circumcising your children at eight days, physical circumcision. How does Paul get away with saying, well, you know, that physical circumcision doesn't really mean anything, even though God has said you have to do it, and even though God has put a great deal of weight on it, uh, you can actually be an enemy of God and be lost, even though you have that physical circumcision. And by the way, the real circumcision that God is looking for is a spiritual circumcision, and in fact, you who are physically circumcised, your circumcision can actually be determined by God to be non-circumcision. How does Paul get away with that? Because that is a huge change from God saying you must physically circumcise your children. It is an identifier for you and your people. Paul comes along and says, that's not what is really important. Well, he gets it from Jeremiah here. At the end of Jeremiah 9, starting at verse 25, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, that I will punish all who are circumcised 
and yet uncircumcised. Isn't that interesting language? The day is coming when I am going to punish the people who have the mark of circumcision who are yet uncircumcised. Well, in what way are they still uncircumcised, though they are physically circumcised? Verse 26 says, Egypt, okay, that would be uncircumcised people. That would be uncircumcised Gentiles. And Judah, wait, those would be circumcised people. And Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples and all the house of Israel who are uncircumcised of heart. So now it is God who identifies what type of circumcision he is talking about when he says, I will punish all those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. They are of the house of Israel, therefore they have the physical circumcision, but they're not following God. They're chasing after their bales. They're being idolatrous in their worship to other gods and foreign gods, and therefore God says, even though you are physically circumcised, you still are rendered uncircumcised. You're not my people. Just because you physically have circumcision, just because you physically have the temple, just because you go to the temple and physically kill animals, just because you physically might keep some parts of the law, like you might keep Sabbath, or you might tithe, or you might do the feast days and everything. If your heart is not with me, then your heart is uncircumcised. Therefore, your physical circumcision still accounts for nothing in terms of keeping the covenant between you and me. So everybody, circumcised and uncircumcised, who doesn't have this circumcision of the heart is counted as uncircumcised, whether you're Egyptian, whether you're a Jew, whether you're an Edomite, whether you're a son of Ammon, or if you're a Moabite, and all those who are inhabiting the desert, and all the nations who are uncircumcised, all the Goyim, all the Gentiles that are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel that are uncircumcised of heart. And the day is coming, says God, that he is going to punish all those who are uncircumcised in heart. And then the Jews would say, well, good, that's not us, because we're physically circumcised. So God includes all those who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. So April, start reading at verse 13 and read through verse 15. For those who are, are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in, their, in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Okay, so how does Paul know that? Where is he gathering that theology? Well, the clue is in the next two passages that are going to be read for us. Luann's going to read Romans 2, starting at verse 25, 
demonstrating that he understands the principle that God has laid out. And that is why he is saying physical circumcision is not the deciding factor in your relationship and covenantal relationship with God. Instead, Romans 2, 25 to 29, Luann. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. But if you break the law, you're going to become as if you were not circumcised. It's exactly what Jeremiah was just telling us. Keep going. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written law code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, so Paul is laying out the exact same principle and comparing Jew and Gentile and saying that Gentiles who are not circumcised, if they keep the law, their uncircumcision will be counted as circumcision. And you who are circumcised, if you break the law, your circumcision is counted as uncircumcision. Okay, so then Anne is going to read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 18, 19, and 20. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Sir, let me go on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But Keep going. It's the keeping of the commandments of God. But the keeping of the commandments of God. Keep reading, 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. So, in all three of those passages, Paul is demonstrating that he understands the principle that God himself has laid out here in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, which is, even though God has said that they physically need to be circumcised, that that is a sign of the covenant of Abraham and Moses with God, but physical circumcision by itself, just like what Luann read for us, physical circumcision by itself does not identify what a genuine Jew is, that he has to have the outward circumcision and the inward circumcision to be counted as truly, genuinely one of God's covenant people. Same thing you're seeing here in Jeremiah, that all nations that are uncircumcised and those who are physically circumcised and all the house of Israel who are uncircumcised in heart are all going to end up under God's judgment because what God is looking for is that internal circumcision, that internal change, that internal commitment and looking forward to God as your redeemer and protector. And you can't just rest on your religious stuff, on the temple, on the law, on your sacrifices, on your tithes, on your stuff. You can't just look to that and say, well, I'm good with God. Because that's exactly what Israel was doing while God was saying, I'm going to punish you anyway. 
So God is much more interested in that commitment, faith, relationship with him than he is interested in your stuff. Got it? Yep. All right. With that introduction in place so that we know the end of the chapter, let's start reading Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 is a lament by Jeremiah over the state of Jerusalem to come. Uh, Commentators argue about whether these first few chapters are written after the fact, when Jeremiah is actually physically looking at Jerusalem and seeing its condition, or whether he believes God that it is going to be destroyed and is then speaking prophetically of a time to come when he's going to see Jerusalem abandoned and becoming the haunt of jackals. Either way, he is lamenting. This is one of the reasons that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. After the book of Jeremiah, and it's going to take a long time to get through the book of Jeremiah. Perhaps Christ will be back before we get through Jeremiah. But if we do get through Jeremiah, or perhaps we'll interweave it as we go, the book immediately following Jeremiah is a five-chapter book called Lamentations. The Lamenting. And tradition is that Jeremiah wrote it. These are the laments of Jeremiah looking over Jerusalem and seeing the destruction that has happened to it. And it's a just fascinating book. I hope we have time to get to it. There are only five chapters in it. Chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4 are all acrostics. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 have 22 verses. Chapter 5 also has 22 verses, but is not an acrostic. Chapter 3 has 66 verses because it's still an acrostic, but it's, it's just built differently. So there's a poetic form going on in every chapter of the Book of Lamentations. But with each chapter 1, 2, and 4, the reason there are 22 verses is that there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and he begins each of his laments with the next successive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's what I'm referring to as an acrostic. And then in chapter 3, the reason there are 66 verses is because he says three things after each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's just a fascinating book. It's fascinating from a literary standpoint, fascinating from a historic standpoint. I hope we're around long enough to get to that and get a chance to dig into it more deeply. But if Jesus comes back before we're done with Jeremiah, then all bets are off and it's good. We can just go ask him about it. Yes. But it's, it's a really good book. Here's the beginning of the lament of Jeremiah. I'm finally done introducing. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them, for all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. I was going to spend the next few verses describing the treachery of these people. And Jeremiah has been told to go and preach to these people. And God keeps giving him new revelation to go tell these people. And Jeremiah is so heavy with them. And he's about to see them destroyed, the slaughter of the daughter of his people. 
that he says, I wish that I just had like a wayfarer's lodging place, just like a little hotel by the side of the road where wayfaring strangers could just hang out. I wish I could go to the desert, get away from these people, and just hide because these people are such a burden, so much weight for me to carry. I wish that I could go from them, for all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like they bend their bow, the same way that they shoot arrows, and they do it by skill, by craft, in order to aim so that the arrow hits its target. He says that's the same way they bend their tongue. They use their words in a way that is destructive and deadly. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Okay, these are the very same people who are showing up at the temple, who are bringing their sacrifices, who were keeping the basics of the law, who were doing all the stuff of religion, and yet God's complaint is, but they don't know me. They don't understand that I'm really not concerned with their sacrifices. I'm God. I have no needs. I'm not made any wealthier because they bring me sheep and cattle and kill it in front of me. Think a couple dead pigeons does anything for me, and I don't need their money. I'm trying to teach them. I'm trying to refine them, as he's going to say in a moment. I'm trying to teach them how to worship me, but they don't understand me. They don't understand my character. Therefore, they have no intimacy of relationship with me. They do not know me, declares the Lord. Let every one of you be on guard against his neighbor. And do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily. And every neighbor goes about, again, using his tongue that way, he goes out as a slanderer. So everybody in Israel at this point, according to Jeremiah, is so underhanded that you can't trust anybody. You can't tell anybody your plans. You can't tell anybody your secrets. You can't even trust your brethren, those who are of your own tribe and family, because everybody deals craftily. And everyone is a slanderer. Verse 5, and everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongues to speak lies. And they wear themselves out. They weary themselves in committing iniquity. That's an expansion on the idea that they go from evil to evil. Everything they're doing is evil and they're plotting their next evil And they're just wearing themselves out, committing their iniquities. Your dwelling is in the midst of deceit, lies. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Through their worshiping of other gods, through their continual adulteries, physical and spiritual adulteries, They're demonstrating that even though they would pretend through the law, they would pretend through the temple, they would pretend to know me by doing the stuff of their religion, but they clearly have no idea who they're dealing with. They don't love me in their hearts. 
They're not attempting to please me, and they just refuse my instruction. Over and again, as I've said, he's going to mention it in a moment, over and again, God is going to say, I instructed them. I tried to correct them, and they won't listen. Hard-headed people. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, behold, I will refine them. That's that language of a refiner using fire in order to accomplish pure silver or pure gold by burning off the dross. He says, I have tried to refine them and burn off their dross by taking them through the punishments that I have taken them through. By taking them through the difficulties of their life, I've tried to get them to trust me, to look to me first, but they don't. They look to their foreign gods first. They look to their own flesh first. They look to other nations first, but they don't come to me first. Behold, I will refine them and assay them. I'll I'll refine them, then I'll size them up. I'll, I'll look closely at them to see if they've learned anything. For what else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. That goes right back to what Jeremiah has already said. They bend their tongues like they bend their bows to shoot people and to destroy people. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. And with his mouth, one speaks peace to his neighbor, but inwardly, he sets an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? On a nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? This is a demonstration that they don't know him. If they knew him, if they understood him, if they had any inkling of what kind of God they were really dealing with, they would realize that, yes, he has to avenge himself on them. Even when he gave them his law, he said, now, when you don't do it, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to drive you out of my land. I'm a faithful God to my own word, and I have already told you what I'm going to do. And you keep walking around thinking there's no way I'm going to do this because you have the temple and because you have the priests and because you have the law and because you have the prophets. and because You keep thinking I'm not going to do it because you don't really know me. If you knew me, you would know that I must avenge myself against you because you are this way. Verse 10. For the mountains, I will take up a weeping and a wailing. This is Jeremiah again lamenting over what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And for the pastures in the wilderness, I will take up a dirge because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. And the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field have fled. They are gone, and I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. By the way, that all happened during the Babylonian captivity. In fact, the walls were torn down. In fact, the temple was destroyed. In fact, the wild animals became prominent in that area. So, knowing all that, verse 12 asks a very pertinent question. Who is the wise man that may understand this? 
Who in Jerusalem understands what I'm like? Who in Jerusalem gets that I have to punish you? Who understands that, of course, I would avenge myself on you? This is the place where I chose to place my name, and you have desecrated it, while all the time acting religious. So, of course, I'm going to avenge myself, and you don't get it. And who is the wise man that will understand these things? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken so that he may declare it? Who in all of Israel was saying what Jeremiah was saying? Well, nobody. They resisted Jeremiah. As we continue through the book, you're going to see the terrible things they did to Jeremiah because of the things he says, because of the things that God told him to say. And God asked the question, is there anybody who's willing to say my words? I'm not finding it. Who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare those words? So why is the land ruined and laid waste like a desert so that no one passes through? Why isn't there one wise man who can explain why this is happening? And the answer is, because they don't know me. They all willfully, deceitfully refuse to know me. If they knew me, they can answer that question. They can explain what's happening to Jerusalem, but they can't explain it because they don't know me. Verse 13, and the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, And have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after their Baals, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. What an important place to put that title. I am the God of Israel. Therefore, behold I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poisoned water to drink. And I will scatter them among the goyim, among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women that they may come. That's really interesting language. Uh, God is talking about professional mourners here. Uh, It's something we don't have here in America. But in the Middle East, if you were a rich person and you died and you wanted to demonstrate how loved you were or how important you were, you would actually hire women who were really good at crying. And uh, in fact, the, the story is that they would get paid by the little vials of tears they could fill up as they were walking and crying after you. And and so God goes to that practice within Israel and says, all right, you want to mourn? You want to cry? It's time to go get those women because there's going to be a whole lot of crying and mourning going on in Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for the wailing women that they may come 
and let them make haste. Tell them to hurry up and take up a wailing for us so that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How are we ruined? We are put to great shame, for we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Now, hear the word of the Lord, O you women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters how to cry. Teach your daughters wailing. And everyone teach her neighbor a dirge, a sad song, a song of remorse and regret. For death has come up through our windows. What very, very descriptive language. It's almost like a horror movie where death is crawling through a city and coming up through the doors and the windows to come get people. That's the language Jeremiah uses here, that death is inescapable. You can't even hide in your house and think it's not going to get you. Death is going to come up through our windows. It has entered into the palaces, so it's going to take down the kings and the mighty men and the princes. And it's going to cut off the children from the streets. It's going to cut off young men from the town squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. Now God's telling Jeremiah, you go say this to those people. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The corpses of men will fall like dung on the open field and like the sheaf after the reaper. But no one is going to be around to gather them. It's going to be a lot of death and that happened when the armies of Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem. It was massive bloodshed, massive destruction. And God predicted it, and God said, if you had known me, if you had followed my law, I would have let you remain in the land. I would have taken care of you. And yet, for all my effort to refine you, to teach you, to instruct you, you refuse to hear me. You refuse to listen because your hearts are hard and uncircumcised. So, what choice do I have? I have to avenge myself against you, and you're going to fall like dung in the open field. The language is so descriptive and really so, ugh. That's the word. I couldn't find a better word than, ugh. It's just really bad language. By the way, um, if you're not comfortable with God talking like that, Probably because uh, you also don't know God. The God of the Bible is exactly like this. And it's important to know that. That the God of the Bible is completely comfortable with the idea of avenging himself against his enemies. The God of the Bible is perfectly willing to destroy people. He made people. He'll destroy people. My mother used to say to me when she was angry at me, that's right, I leapt right from God the Almighty to my mom, because there is a direct correlation. My mom, when she got angry at us, she used to say to us, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out. 
This is the same thing God is saying. I've created you. I've made you for my own good pleasure. I've made you for the purpose of my own worship and my own glorification of myself. And you belong to me. I can do with you what I choose to do. I'm the potter. You're the clay. I can do whatever I want. And so you have to realize that God is a vengeful God. This God is a God who is willing to avenge himself against people. And that, again, is why it's so necessary to understand the redemption that Christ proffers that protects us from the very wrath of God because he is still today a God perfectly willing to pour out his wrath if you don't know him, if you don't pay attention to him and to his word. And by the way, his word includes that there's only one way to him. So pay attention to that. And there's a whole wide world out there that doesn't know him and doesn't pay attention to his word and doesn't know that the only way to him is through his son. And those people are going to face the vengeance of God one day. And he is perfectly right and perfectly just in avenging himself and in judging those people for their complete lack of knowledge of him. Because it's not like he's hiding He's presenting himself everywhere. He's made himself obvious through the fact that the creation exists and through his word and through sending prophets and preachers and teachers into this world. And yet there are people who just don't get it. Well, that was true of Israel back in Jeremiah's day. It's true of America and the world in this present day. And you're dealing with the exact same God who has the exact same nature, who doesn't change one whit. Therefore, he's perfectly not only willing, but just to judge people and to avenge himself. Uh, How many times do I have to say run to Christ? You can see the necessity of Christ in what he's saying here. He will judge. Verse 23. Thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Okay, so I've been stressing tonight and for the last couple of weeks that what the Jews have been doing is that they've been saying, well, we, we have the temple. Well, we have the law. Well, we have the oracles and the prophets. And we have, well, we have, well, we have all the stuff. And so, therefore, God is not going to punish us. In other words, they're boasting in their stuff rather than boasting in God. Rather than saying, we are trusting God to protect us. They are chasing after every other thing, including the worship of their bales and their idols and their images. And so God says you're boasting in all this foolishness when you boast. Boast in me. That's the only boast you get. If you're a smart guy, if you're a wise man, don't boast in your wisdom. If you're a strong man, if you're a mighty man, Don't boast in your strength or your might. If you're a rich man, an influential man, don't boast in your riches, but let him who boasts boast of this. Tom, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 1, and you're going to read verses 30 to 31. In both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul quotes, right from this portion of Jeremiah. Let the man who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows 
me. He just got done saying, none of you know me. None of you understand me, and there's no wise man among you who will listen to what I say and then tell other people what I have said. There is no wisdom among you, despite the fact that you all think you're very clever, and despite the fact that you all are boasting in your religious practice, you're boasting in the fact that you have the temple and the law, you have all the trappings, as if you know me, and yet you don't know what I'm like or who I am. Otherwise, you would know that this punishment is coming and that it's unavoidable, and yet you're being lied to by your false prophets who are telling you that you're fine with me and it's all going to be peace, that demonstrations that you don't know me and so you boast in your wisdom and you boast in your riches and you boast in your strength and you shouldn't be boasting in any of that or taking confidence in any of that if you're going to boast or brag about anything you should be boasting if you understand and know have intimate knowledge of me that's the only thing you can boast about you get it But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. If you knew me, if you understood me, you'd know that I'm merciful, that I will be merciful to you, that I am full of loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. If you knew that God was a righteous, holy God, you would understand the judgment of God. If you understood the character of God, that he is patient and kind and loving, you would also know that he is a just God. And therefore, the punishment that you're about to endure is completely right and proper and fair because everything God does, by virtue of the fact that he is a righteous, holy God, everything he does is righteous and holy. And if you knew that about me, then none of what is happening to you right now would be a surprise. In fact, if you knew that about me, you would have been worshiping me in spirit and truth, and this would not be happening. I would let you stay in your land as I promised you when I brought you in of the land. When I gave you the law at Mount Sinai, I told you if you keep my law that your days are going to be long on the land and you're going to live here. But I told you right away that if you broke my law and if you followed after your bales and if you followed after your hard hearts, that I would drive you out of the land. And that's my justice. And if you knew me, you would know my justice and you would know that I'm righteous and you would know that I'm loving and that I'm kind. If you knew me, But you don't know me, and that's your problem, because I delight in these things, declares the Lord. So therefore, whoever's boasting, you only get to boast in, I have the understanding of God. God has revealed himself to me, and I understand the character, the nature of God, because he has revealed it to me. And it's the only thing I have to boast in. I can't boast in my flesh. I can't boast in my law-keeping. I can't boast in my self-justification. I can't boast in my circumcision. I can't boast in my tithing. I can't boast in my church membership. I can't boast in anything except God. I, I know God, and that's an astounding thing that I know God. God. And so therefore, 
I'm going to boast in that. Well, that was carried over into the New Testament, and Paul said the same thing, that human beings don't get to boast in their own self-righteousness, and they don't get to boast in their flesh. They don't get to boast in their law-keeping. They only get to boast in one thing. Read that for us, Tom. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31. And because of him, that is God, you are in Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And he started by saying, it is because of God that you're in Jesus Christ. So what do you get to boast about if you're in Christ today, if you know anything about Christ right now? It's not because you figured him out. It's not because you're clever or smart or strong or mighty or rich. It's because God himself was kind to you and gracious and taught you the things of Christ. Therefore, the only boast you get is to boast in God, who not only is willing to judge, but is willing to save in his loving kindness, who would send his son to redeem his people. And then you have faith in his son. And that, again, is a result of God demonstrating his loving kindness in the midst of his justice and his righteousness. And in all of that, the only boast you get is he's God. And you better pray you know something about that God. And that pretty much finishes the chapter because the last two verses we looked at at the beginning of the evening. Verse 25, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair of their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So being uncircumcised in heart, they deserve the punishment of God. Notice, however, that God even says that the punishment that he's going to bring on Israel is for the sake of refining them. It's for the sake of then assaying them, then sizing them up, then observing them and seeing how they react. God's punishment of his people is always for the purpose of correction. That's why the writer of Hebrews could say things like, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, yeah. Scourges every son he receives. So... God in his faithfulness does not lose his people, but he sure will teach his people. And sometimes he has to teach you the really hard way. And that's what he did to the nation of Israel. And the reason that he did it to Israel was because they did not know him despite his extensive demonstration of himself and revelation of himself. They would not pay attention to it. And so he held them responsible for it. He has revealed himself to us extensively. We really need to pay attention to that. We really need to be in his word. And we really need to be approaching him the way he has revealed himself through his son, Christ Jesus, the way and the truth and the life, because that's what he has revealed. And if you don't 
agree with him, that that's the only way to get to him. You don't know the God of the Bible. And I think I'm done. Questions? Comments? Feedback? Smoke signals? Telegraphs? Smoke signal? Uh, oh. It is very, it was striking to me just how many references in this chapter and previously there are to this Israel here and the lies, the deceit. Uh, there's just so many references to it. It seems that it's a hallmark of a nation that has wandered from God that lies are pervasive. And as he said, you know, lies and not truth prevail in the land. I mean, I think we can. Make that obvious. Yeah, apply that. Yeah, I mean, a lot of not truth prevailing in the land uh, currently. Yeah. You know, just read another statistic where there's um, well, church attendance here in America declined again, you know, this year. Every year it's going down and down. I mean, just look at social media, people, politicians, the media. Nobody believes half the things that are being put out there. Everyone just knows it a lot. People lie when the truth is even more convenient, it yeah. seems like, these days. <laughs> People expect the lies these days. And they lie for political advantage, and they lie to make money, and they lie to, yeah, just lie constantly. Yeah. I agree. So is it God's spirit that helps us? Because our, our, all of our hearts are deceitful. You know, we can have... And desperately anger, wicked. Lust. You know, we can... We can repent from that and repurge it, but sometimes those are secret sins. We look good on the outside, but we may have bondage and stuff in our hearts from childhood, you know, that we don't really know. Or adulthood. Adulthood, and childhood, and whatever. Because there's no good apart from the Lord. I mean, we're here today. If it wasn't for God, I don't think we'd be here, would we? No. In this room. No, of course not. He's the one drawing you. Yeah. I mean, He's the one revealing himself. Anything else? All right, good. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.